You're listening to the one of us.net podcast network. One of us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio based or banner ads, but on a case by case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at one of us net at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage one of us.net and sign up for a subscription at two, five, ten, or twenty-five dollars and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. Well, it's a pleasure to sit down with Mr. John Golson here. Uh, he is a local movie expert, comics expert. We're really glad to have him here in the studio with us at Digital Noise to talk about, well, some of the latest home releases. John, how are you? Thank you, Christopher. Uh, I'm well. I'm well. Um, it's nice to see you again after all this time. Oh, delightful. <laughs> Did I fuck it up by laughing? I fucked it up by laughing. You didn't, you didn't mess it I'm, up. I'm laughing. trying to make a reel for NPR just in case, you know, just in case they need a movie guy, you know, because the movie guy on there is not great. Well, they used to have Kenneth Turan. Yeah. Is he still, is he still there? I don't know, but I, I'm always like, no, wrong. His, his mouth always sounds like everyone else on NPR has a, the very clean and crisp, you know. Yeah. You're listening to all things Eloquent. considered. Eloquence. Yeah. Eloquence. But Kenneth Turan always sounded like he was literally had a mouthful of pudding while he was talking. Like, that's with Kenneth around with LA type. So it was like, okay. Like, <laughs> I mean, sometimes I sound that way. I hope he's not listening. Usually because I got a mouthful of beer. But, you know, same difference. <laughs> same difference. Mobbles in my mouth. Anyway, we are here to do Digital Noise with Mr. John Golson. Sir John Golson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I was knighted. Yeah. I knighted you. Thank you. You're, you're the You're the light knight. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. And we review home releases. That's what we do. That's all we do. And you cannot stop us. We're like the Terminator. This was a this was a good one. Like uh in general, compared to the last time I was on, last yeah. time I was on, I don't think I've ever gotten a a, a stack as consistently as mediocre to stinky as the last one that I had. Sorry. So this one was like, okay, you know, it's I know it's a roll of the dice and you never and you also never know what opinion I'm going to have. Like no. That's a thing too. We tend to agree much more than we don't. Like me, you and I, more than literally anyone else. It's on one about of us. ninety. It's about we. I think we have about a ninety percent match in general. There's always one that you're a little bit more on, or I'm a little bit less on, or vice versa. But it's right. always like it's so rare. Like maybe once every, gosh, once every like five or six shows where you'll be like, I really liked this, and I'll be like, I didn't, or yeah. vice versa. <laughs> and even then, it tends to be like you like it slightly less than I yeah. did, or something. Yeah. But you know, I don't know. I think there might be one like that. This Do we week. need to create greater conflict? <laughs> Do I just need to play devil's advocate? And like, even if it's not my opinion, just for drama's sake, because every every true, like, really good drama has a conflict at the very heart of it. So maybe the sh- maybe my episodes would be better if we if. Even if I didn't believe it, I opposed you. 
Some motherfucker's always trying to come up in here and tell me what movies are good and which movies are bad. Don't be ice skating uphill, bitch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm trying. I don't know. That was somewhere between Tarantino and Blade. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't, but, you know, here we are. Let's go on and talk about some movies. We're going to start with a, a double dose of 4K from Arrow, who is... Wow. Like I've always said for years, Arrow has become sort of criterion for genre films that they mm-hmm. do all of the quality of the, when they upgrade it, like, man, they put just as much care and love and tenderness into making the audio and video as good as it could possibly be. They do all the, the same level of care with like sourcing new extras and old extras. And now they've beaten criterion to the punch with 4k of like officially going, yeah, we do 4k now, bitch. And criterion's like, wait, what, what, what do we got? We have citizen Kane. We got citizen Kane. It's on 4k now there. Watch that. It reminds me <laughs> of so much of the early days of DVD when it was like, uh, Anchor Bay and Blue Underground, and you would go to Best Buy and find these like Blue Underground and Anchor Bay discs of that were like really nice special editions of these horror movies. And it's sort of, you know, we don't have the Best Buy experience when we shop for these things like we used to, but it's sort of, I'm glad that someone is, is still out there doing that. I'm yeah. glad somebody's still treating these movies with care. Oh, and, and they also do the thing that those companies in particular didn't really do as much. The Arrow specifically really does incredible packaging like mm-hmm. whole booklets like fold out things like they are all about like hey bitches look at us like yeah. you don't like arty films no one's ever heard of from the 70s from like thailand great we've got like the horror movie you grew up with with four discs in 4k with like a 50 page book you know yeah there you go yeah. <laughs> and now they're going in deep diving into some of the early works of legendary giallo master dario argento certainly not the inventor of giallo well that would be a bunch of english and british guys who wrote books that were translated into italian published there with yellow covers thus the title giallo which just means yellow in italian about like sleazy crime stuff that the crime genre of giallo and film grew out of with mario bava who first started doing adaptations like um was it black gloves and black lace i can't remember was it what, you know what i'm talking about. yeah i know the movie yeah, but yeah. i i, I can't rattle off the title it. yeah uh argento though was definitely definitely looked at as sort of the guy after bava who took it to the next level which part of that was like i really like super realistic very style very over stylized gory stuff which bava was not quite as much into and argento's big like, he literally went to his wealthy father and said, did you see this Bava film? I can do better than that. L- loan me, like, a million dollars because I'm going to make my own Giallo film. <laughs> and so he made The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which most times is, like, legendary directors. You see their, like, first work and you're like, you know, I mean, it's okay. And honestly, Argento hit the ground fucking running with this one. Yeah, there's – it's really – it's a very – you know, it's funny. If that story is true, they, it, he – his confidence shows on screen. Like he definitely knew what he was doing and what he wanted to execute. And honestly, like the, uh, the suspense sequences in it are really when he comes alive as a director and he has a very particular way of like, no, I, I like the staging of those sequences, like the actual build of them, like cut to this, then show this, then I'm going to do this. Then this is going to happen. All feels so meticulously created. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's quite a debut. And it was a huge success in Italy when it came out as well to literally, I think everyone's surprised, probably no one more than Argento's dad. <laughs> it's like, really? <laughs> you were? I always thought that kid was useless. He's always torturing animals in the backyard. But I'm kidding. I don't know that he did that. But, um, and 
outside of that, although it didn't make a lot of money outside of Italy because there just wasn't a big distribution program for stuff like this back then. And this would definitely have been considered a video nasty in mm-hmm. most Western countries at that point. Uh, it has gained a huge critical like respect over the years of so people going, this is genuinely a really good film. Why weren't his next two films as good? We'll get into that later. But this particular one follows an American writer, Sam Dalmas. That's a name. Tony Musante playing him, who is vacationing in Rome with his gorgeous English model girlfriend, Julia, played by Susie Kendall. And, uh, his real, he's about to leave to go back to America. He's like, you know, there to get writing inspiration and also party in Italy in the sixties because mm-hmm. I mean, damn, if I could time travel, <laughs> yeah, I probably would pick, you know, like, let's go hang out with Fellini and a bunch of models and Argento's dad, Argento's dad, do a bunch of blow, <laughs> like, you know, come on. And, uh, he is about to come back when he witnesses this woman through the, this, huge window display of an art gallery being attacked by a mysterious black glove figure. I mean, if you're new to Giallo, hey, there's a lot of black glove killers. <laughs> and he tries to get to her, open, manages to open up the, the first layer of glass doors because there's two layers and then he gets stuck between them. Whereas like the other, the outside won't exit, but he can't get in. He has to watch this happen. And it's one of, it's just a mesmerizing opening to a film. And he, she survives. Uh, Monica Ranieri, uh, played by Eva Renzi, who was a major, I believe, model at the time. Uh, but she's the wife of the gallery owner. Uh, the police say, well, we're going to take your passport because you're the only witness to this thing. So, uh, you know, we, you can't, we're kindly asking you not to leave by forcibly taking your passport. But he's having nightmares about this, like constantly flashing back and going, as he says, literally, I know I missed something. There's something that I'm seeing that's bugging me and I can't figure out what it is, which as an audience member makes you go, well, I watched that scene too. What did, what did I not see? And every flashback is slightly different. So Mm -hmm. you can see him start to remember more and more, like it's visually represented on screen by the flash, by the flashbacks changing as he starts to recall or, or try to piece together what happened. And as he starts to, realize he's, you know, he, he can't let this alone. He's actually helping the inspector, local inspector in the investigation. He's interviewing like other people who were killed, who they suspect was by the same person. He starts to get threatened by presumably the killer who attacks various people, uh, who gives him menacing phone calls. Um, and, he through all this, he starts putting together, you know, a, a, a sort of process. A, you know, he doesn't put together the wall with yarn, but he's like mentally and the director is in filmmaking putting together the, the virtual wall with yarn of like, how do all these things connect? So it's very much a murder mystery type thing with moments of horror. I mean, when they get to the killings, they're certainly not as brutal as stuff that happens in later Argento's career. But mm-hmm. for this period of time, when this film came out, they were pretty fucking brutal. Yeah. And I think ultimately what I like this best about this is it ends with a really interesting, wow, I did not see that coming turn at the end. Yeah, that's, that was really what put it over for me Uh, up to that point. Like I really admired the construction. I mean, I've already, I already kind of said this, but I really admired the construction of a lot of the suspense sequences. You could tell that Argento was heavily invested in the creation of those and everything else kind of falls flat. So like, 
when it's just people having conversation or they're just talking about stuff or exposition or, you know, just chit chat, that stuff is, is he, it's, he's almost disinterested in that stuff because then he really springs to life through framing and editing and everything when something suspenseful has happened. Someone's being chased or someone's being killed. And it's like, it almost becomes like a completely different movie for those moments. Um, you know, uh, so you can tell where his interests were at. Uh, and then by the time it gets to the end, I was like, okay, that's a really strong finish. And I, and I walked away really, really it probably didn't hurt the scores by Mount Morcone. You know, I mean, obviously you can't front on that. Yeah. I mean, I don't love every Morricone score, but this is a great score. Yeah. You know, I mean, later on, Argento will become much more famous for working with the Italian prog rock band Goblin, which he did Deep Red and Suspiria with. But this is a fantastic and very memorable Morricone score as well. Um, yeah, it, it, there's interesting as well that as I was watching this, I was thinking because I had recently rewatched The Stendhal Syndrome, which mm-hmm. is a much later in his career Argento film about a person who – has the literal Stendhal system syndrome. It's a real thing where people who see works of art start hallucinating based on the works of art. And like anything that gives you an, a sense of aesthetic pleasure through art, they fall into like a fugue state and start hallucinating and sometimes have like seizures. And there's early bits of that in here. <laughs> it's like, Oh, that, that comes back around later. Yeah. I don't like that. Anyway, I, I, and I think as well, this is just a really solid, even better than two years ago, they put this out on Blu-ray, even better transfer than that one. There is all the, even though this one, unlike the original, which was Blu-ray and DVD, this is just the 4K. So if you have a 4K player, this is the one to get. But if you're like thinking about getting a 4K player, but don't have it yet and like to get ones that have the Blu-ray as well, this, it does not. But it did port all of the bonus features from the previous release, which are actually quite impressive there's there's a whole series of really good stuff on here and analyses on this film as well as an audio commentary by troy howarth who wrote so deadly so perverse 50 years of italian giallo films um and this adds a little bit of thing and i know it's not that big a deal but it adds a whole image galleries of like lobby cards from various different countries promotional materials uh, publicity stills that weren't on the previous release so this is decidedly the best version of this film that you're going to get at this point with a beautiful slipcover box set case they also released cat of nine tales in 4k which is the second dario argento film and really after the really surprising success of bird with the crystal plumage everyone was like ooh, ooh do it again do it again <laughs> As yeah. a, and so he was pushed very hard to in fact do it again now having people who wanted to give him money to do it and he made a film that in many ways resembles bird with the crystal plumage but definitely feels more rushed doesn't have all those marks of quality and as argento himself said is his one of his least favorite films he ever made and his reason for that he's like i felt like i was trying too hard to appeal to western influences and not going with my gut with what would work Mm -hmm. and maybe that's more exemplified than anything that his main star here is actor carl malden which if you're young and haven't watched airplane you probably don't know who that is but he was a big guy in like the 70s and 80s he was the streets of san francisco he that was his show with young michael douglas it was a cop show starring carl carl mald his name is hard to say carl Carl malden it's that all sound that you have to do twice yeah um yeah but uh yeah weirdly his his 
The secondary star here, James Franciscus, is interesting because he was on a television show uh, in, God, I, I think the 70s as well, where, called Long Street. And he played a blind detective in that show, right? Because at that point there was like, um, what was the one with the guy in the wheelchair? Uh, that was huge. You know what I'm talking about, right? Ironside. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, like there was this thing with like, oh, like handicapped detectives and when it's a, it was like an attempt to cash on that. And this one, he's a detective, but not blind. But the main character, Carl Malden, is like an ex-newspaper journalist who works with him who is blind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh, is that a coincidence? I, I don't know. It's just interesting little side point there. But this is considered the first of the three animal trilogy, or I'm sorry, the second of the three animal trilogy, because the next one is Four Flies on Grey Velvet, which is not an animal, but they still call it animal trilogy because they've got animals in the title from Dario Argento. Uh, yeah. So somebody breaks into this medical institute, doesn't take anything. Um, we see a doctor talk to his fiance, say, Oh, I know who did it and why, but doesn't tell her. He's investigating. He starts to get into blackmail and, but he's pushed in front of a train, but a paparazzi photo, uh, of person who was trying to take a picture of him manages to capture a photo that he doesn't even realize at first captures the hand of the person pushing him, makes clear it was not an accident. It was a murder. All this surrounds around as we said, the main blind character who, uh, Franco Cookie Arno, uh, middle-aged guy, used to be a reporter, and his little niece, who's the only one who calls him Cookie, cause he's so sweet, uh, <laughs> who, this guy just overhears everything and goes like, we should go investigate that. It's like, dude, you're blind. Stop. Yeah. You're not, this is a terrible idea. I mean, like, I get it. I'm not trying to sh- like diss on blind people, but like investigating serial killers, not a great career for blind people. <laughs> Not a great career for anybody that's the caretaker of a young child, like a single caretaker of a young child. Like, why don't you come with me while we go <laughs> talk to the detectives? So he ends up working with the detective who ends up impressed with him when he finds out, oh, he actually used to be an investigative journalist with some real credits to his career there and start going, breaking down. Like, you know, oh, let's look at the, these, the, the, the fact that somebody is killing off all these scientists that work at this institute one at a time. I don't know, man. The, the cat of nine tails refers to the number of sus- potential suspects, which is, huh? <laughs> yeah, I couldn't name the nine. I was no. like, they, I, they talked to like three guys. Yeah, but, but it's sort of like this uh, thing where it's one of those movies where like they'll get a little bit closer and think they have an answer, and then that person ends up dead, and then they get yeah. a little bit closer and think they have an answer, and then that person ends up dead with black gloves again. Yeah, let's not forget black yeah. gloves. Yeah. Always black gloves. No one ever wears like lacy fine like red gloves or something. It's always black <laughs> yellow gloves. kitchen gloves. Yeah, no one's ever wearing the rubber, you know, <laughs> um, dishpan hands. Uh, they uh, <laughs> you're yeah, soaking in it. It's not. <laughs> it's not as. Um, it's just not as snappy as Bird with a Crystal Plumage, and it doesn't have as satisfying of a resolution either. Um, there are a couple moments of shock violence that are pretty entertaining, like the uh, the the person getting hit by the train. They kind of spin. That's that was uh, that needed to be rewound a couple times. Yeah. And the uh, there's a scene towards the end where someone um, tries to grab the cables on an elevator to slow their fall. That's uh, yeah, it yeah, it's like one of those things of like bad idea, but you also like your brain will also tell you like, Oh, they would have let go by now. Like he would just be like, ow, 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 <laughs> all the way down. Um, this, I, it was kind of dull. I, I just, 
you know, and it starts off pretty interesting, especially I think, you know, watching Bird with the Crystal Plumage first and then following up with this, I was like, okay, now I'm in for a treat. Like I'm going to watch another one of these that I've never seen. And, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was not my thing. I just, I found it mostly just lifeless and it was one of the, so, you know, it's, it's kind of the death of a mystery if you're movie gets less interesting as it goes along. Yeah. And I kind of find Cat of Nine Tails constructed that way where I think it's it's sort of front loaded with interest and as they get closer to solving it, it becomes less and less interesting, which is really like like that's that's a killer for a mystery. I well, mean if that's happening in your mystery, then it's like you're just done. It, unlike all right, so Bird of the Crystal Plumage d- is definitely a film that isn't really interested outside of some of the killings being somewhat graphic and being more of a horror film than a thriller. Mm-hmm. This feels like it's in the last act, constantly doing things that serve no real purpose to make it feel like a horror film. Yeah. Like there's for reasons I'm still not clear on. They're in like a mortuary, trapped in a mortuary towards the end of it. You're like, wait, what? What's happening here? And there's like a rooftop chase that's actually dull. <laughs> like how's a rooftop chase dull? But it kind of is. I mean, Morricone does a good uh, t- uh, job again with the the score, but I I mean, this is worth seeing certainly if you're a fan of Argento and and I I'm not, I don't want to call it a completionist. I mean, it's good enough. You're like, at worst, it's kind of workmanlike, really. Yeah. I, I mean, its story just isn't as good. It's got flares of wow, that was cool, but it, it's not even half the film that uh, Bird is. Yeah. But you know. You know, if you know if you're a huge Argento fan like me, you're going to watch it. This is my second time watching it, thinking maybe I'll like it more this time. I did not. There are all the extras from the previous Blu-ray release they did of this also included. This also is one that's just the 4K, no extra Blu-ray included. And it also includes image galleries that were not previously released on the other edition. So, yeah, and with a beautiful slipcase and all that stuff. Really nice cover for this one. I was like, ooh, that's pretty. But let's move on away from Italy, and to Thailand with the film The Maid, directed and written by Lee Thong Thongkam, and uh, co-written by Paya Luke. You know, I'm not even going to try. So, <laughs> I, I'm not, I looked at that, I was like, what is that? I don't know how, I, I don't even know how to begin. My apologies if you're listening, which you're not. So <laughs> this film, which is coming out from Epic, which is actually on Netflix, it yeah. just apparently was popular enough. They're like, ooh, let's put out a Blu-ray, Blu-ray release for people who might want to keep this thing. Uh, so we see this woman, Joy, played by Ploy Sornanrin. So sorry, I'm such an, a white American terrible person. Now you have to now you have to read everyone's name on the oh, cast God. since you've already committed this much. She uh, gets hired by a housemaid by a, a very wealthy family. Uh, and I'm carefully avoiding saying their character names so I don't have to say the actors' names, who is has a, uh, a woman of the house who's very fancy. She's very fancy indeed. She mm-hmm. smokes cigarettes out of cigarette holders and what have you. And uh, her husband and their only child and daughter, uh, just a adorable little kid named Nid. Oh, shit. Called, named by Pat Pungru. Uh, Joy is told right off the bat, like, hey, just do your fucking job and don't ask any questions. Literally, don't ask any questions by the head housemaid, Mrs. Wan, played by, goddammit, Natani Sithisman. Sithisman. Sith. Fuck. Anyway, right off the bat, she's like, what was that? 
what was that? What was that thing? Did you see that thing? Did you see that ghost thing that was there? Uh, there would seem like a thing that was ghostly. People I like, could have sworn I saw a monkey in a tuxedo. Yeah. Oh, there's an opening scene with a ghost <laughs> monkey, like demon ghost monkey, that is like set up to be a major part of this film and is never mentioned again. <laughs> what a letdown. <laughs> never comes up again. Oh my God, I forgot about the demon ghost yeah, monkey. Yeah, he's in the movie for like, it literally opens the movie and you think it's going to be something completely it's a, different. It's about it's just, demon ghost monkeys, I don't right? know if it was like something that they you they filmed to promote it online, like watch the first eight minutes of The Maid now. And so they made sure that the first eight minutes had a killer monkey in a tuxedo, and then the rest of the movie doesn't. Yeah, it never even is referenced again. <laughs> like, then no one ever goes, wasn't there something about a monkey in this thing? No, there was. Forget about that. Forget about what <laughs> Don't you Don't worry saw. about There's it. No monkey. I baffling. Anyway, so this is one of those like she slowly starts to uncover shit. Like, oh, some stuff happened. She finds out there was a former housemaid there who mysteriously disappeared and sort of uncover what was the deal? What was her relationship with these characters here, the other people who live in this house? And she's cl- slowly getting closer and closer to the young daughter. I mean, she clearly has, doesn't seem to have any negative, like, like when she's with her, she's like, I just want to take care of this kid. But she's starting to get very suspicious of the rest of the family who are admittedly, you know, I mean, like characters in Clue. They're like, mm-hmm. okay, you did something. Yeah. <laughs> and as it goes along, it, it feels initially like a pretty standard ghost haunting film, but there's a, a major character twist that happens at the top of the third act that I was like, woke me the fuck up. And I was like, Oh, I didn't see that coming. And totally saved this movie from being a totally disposable, here's another one of those jump scare, same ghost shit we've seen before movies to like, oh, that was actually kind of cool. It's too bad that you couldn't find a way to do more interesting stuff with the ghost stuff in the pre first two thirds and gotten rid of the tuxedo ghost monkey. But still, that last third, I was like, oh, man, I'm I'm kind of liking this now. Yeah, I I don't know if knowing that ahead of time had any particular effect on me watching this because I, I got partway through it and, and kind of found it incredibly boring and then took a break and was like, what, what are people even saying about this movie? Like what are, what are, what are the reviews that are out there? And I go and I look and the reviews are generally like, yeah, they're mixed. They're, I can't even say mixed negative or mixed positive. They really are mixed. They're like right down the middle. But, but most everybody says, Oh, but things get really crazy at the end. And they did, just didn't get crazy enough for me. It worked for me, man. And I was like, eh. I didn't see it coming at all. And I, I really, and I thought it got super brutal, like really over the top brutal when the rest of the movie's not that way. Um, it's just, We've seen all of this setup before, so many times before, for it to take that type of turn was like, oh, that's, I, I didn't know that's what I always wanted to happen in these movies, but it's what I always wanted to happen. It was not movies. worth the trip for me. Like, not worth the, just not you worth didn't all get the other stuff I had. To, monkey, that's I, honestly, that's the truth. I was <laughs> like, the, you, you already got rid of the best character in the whole film. <laughs> Tuxedo Monkey was just it for you, huh? That was this should have been called Tuxedo Monkey and it should have ended at the eight minute mark. <laughs> I don't know. I, I liked this much more than I didn't. I thought even when it was more kind of by the numbers, it had some really good performances in it, especially by the lead actress. I thought she was great in this. Uh she really swings 
her emotions in a way that I found convincing and affecting. And when it gets to the violence, I thought it was really effectively, disturbingly brutal. Like, I, I agree with you that, like, if you were watching this, you're like, oh, Jesus, here's another one. If I was watching this on Netflix, I would have stopped halfway through. Yeah. I'd have been like, okay. I mean, that's whatever. essentially what I did. <laughs> I would have gone, this is fine, but I've seen a lot of movies just like this, and I know where it's going. But as it turned out, I didn't know where it was going, and I'm glad I stuck with it. Let's move on to our next one, which is the really inaccurately titled The Cannibal Man. Like, not even faintly appropriately titled. <laughs> uh, well, and then you start it, the movie says something like The Week of Darkness or whatever. Like, it, the, the title that comes up on the screen is completely different. Well, than no, the, it was The Apartment on the 13th Floor was okay. the alternate title, which also is a wildly useless but, title. For but this that's film. an even different one than the one that shows up on the title. Oh, yeah. Know. The opening title it's something like the week of it's either the week of horror or the week of terror or something like that. Um, that, that displays on the screen when the title appears. All right. I've been talking about all the plots. So it's your turn. Oh man. So this particular movie is about a guy, handsome, uh, dude, I think this is a Spanish film. Is that correct? Uh, this is a Spanish 1972 horror film. Yeah. So this guy, handsome dude, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's a manly man and he, um, is out with his woman one night and a cab driver gets a little handsy and aggressive and rude and he ends up murdering the cab driver by accident. But yeah. Uh, and his girlfriend is there and she sees everything happen and, um, it, that incident causes him to spiral. And I, you know, there's a little thing of like, I think over the course of the movie and, you know, this does, this does kind of fit into the synopsis of it without necessarily trying to avoid spoiling things. <laughs> I think because he gets away with it, it affects the power trip of, Oh, I can just effing kill people. Like, this is something that I can do and no one will ever find out because he gets away with it once. And it becomes, it becomes something that's almost like it lives in the ballpark of something like Henry portrait of a serial killer, where you have this character who's like is dealing on the one hand can totally put on a mask and appear in public like a regular dude. But there's something about him. It's not even that he has a hair trigger. Again, I think it's, I think it's the, the underlying thrill of knowing he can get away with it. That's sort of driving what he's doing. Um, it's kind of a character study in an odd way. Yeah. Not really a, a, a horror film like you would think. No. Um, again, akin to Henry, because Henry is kind of a character study. It's just, we're going to spend time with this killer. But I mean, and, I, I thought of that too, except that Henry wants to do what he's doing. Mm-hmm. This character is true as a guy who's like, why do you keep making me do this? Yeah. Even though he's like broken, like no one's making you do this. Yeah. You're just like, I am absolutely not going to jail. Yeah. Like, but in every other way, he's kind of a chill dude, except that if someone gets too close to his shit, he's like, ah, oh, fuck. And, and the great this. thing about it, I think, is really performance-wise, you still feel like those are elements of the same person. Mm-hmm. It would be real easy for a worse actor or a worse movie to slip into like this thing where it's like, now I'm psycho, now I'm normal, now yeah. I'm psycho. But this really feels like the same guy. Like It, it really feels like you're watching mm-hmm. the the... <laughs> the the same person who you just saw having drinks with his gay friend is now like 
killing someone. All right, so let's talk about that. Well, I mean, first, let me say, this guy's just like has no idea what to do with dead bodies. He's not paying oh, yeah. for this, so he's just filling up his bedroom and closing the door with dead bodies and having to spray fucking Lysol everywhere. <laughs> it's like, it's a reoccurring problem. Mm-hmm. And he, hot chicks are coming to his house wanting to fuck him, going, what does that smell? Can we go fuck in your bed? <laughs> he's like, uh, can we go somewhere else? Uh, uh, he's not a bad-looking guy. And uh, he has this one guy who is thus the title apartment on the 13th floor, which is weirdly like, what's the relevance there? Because I'm not sure what that subplot's going. I thought, like, is this saying something about this character is gay and doesn't know he's gay? Like, is that a subtext? I really thought a lot about trying to figure out how that would come together, and I never could quite piece it together, because that guy is clearly gay, the rich mm-hmm. friend who just kind of seeks him out, meets the meet on the beach, you know, walking around, smoking cigarettes as they do in Italy, drinking tiny cups of espresso. Like, and he's like, I really like this guy. I want to spend more time with him. It never, they never have gay sex or anything or even the, even get close to it, but it's very strongly insinuated that he would never hurt this guy. In fact, to the point where he thinks about it and then doesn't. And what does that mean? I don't know the answer to that, but what I can tell you is that this film was openly discussed coming out before the end of the Franco regime in Spain as a subtle attack on the Franco regime. I have no idea how that works, but it's much discussed in the sense that this was supposed to be a very, you know, like underground film that was everything you're seeing is not really about what you're seeing. It's about attacking the Franco regime. Mm. Okay. I, I can't watch it like that. I just don't know enough about that, but it is interesting. It's a little dull. You know, at points, there's obviously a very strong uh, vegetarian uh, undercutting thing. It opens with a slaughterhouse brutally and for real slaughtering cows and scenes that even me as a devoted barbecue loving carnivore was like enough. Don't want to see any more of that. Uh, and keeps coming back to that. Is that just in the one cut? Is that the difference between the two it's cuts? It's in both cuts. The okay. only difference is they move that scene to the middle of the film okay. in the extended cut, as opposed to opening with it. I'm not sure what the relevance is there of that. But, you know, when they say Cannibal Man, there's one scene where he eats some food that he realizes after the fact might have human meat in it, but is not happy about it. No. <laughs> you know, so not really Cannibal Man. No. Really? <laughs> You know, a cannibal man is bitten by a cannibal and has the proportionate strength and speed of a cannibal. Cannibal man, cannibal man um, does everything. I really, cannibal I can. like this. It's a, it's a vibe movie. It's sort of like you either. I feel like it's like you know, there are those movies that are very plot heavy, or you know, when you're talking about horror stuff that's suspense driven or built around gore gags. This is one of those that just has a dark vibe and is really like a character piece with a really dark vibe. Mm. And I kind of vibed with it. I, 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 I don't know what I thought it was going to be. You see the cover and it's like a, a painting of a guy with a meat cleaver in the middle of his face and it says cannibal man. Which does like, in fact, at least they actually have that shot in yeah, the film. I thought it was going to be something akin to like Dr. Butcher MD or something right. like that. And it, it was, not. It was way, way closer to Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer than I than I expected, uh, and, and not even as gory as that. No, and no, not at all. Not even remotely. But still has the same kind of like. Again, it's just it's a hangout with someone you would never want to know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I and I vibed with it. I liked it. It's interesting enough that I went. I could see someone doing this and also trying to find a way to create like a 
a political subtext to it, which once again, I didn't understand the one here, but mm-hmm. saying I respect this enough to want to do that in some modern sense to try and remake it, add some like modern modernity to it. And like, I don't know, toy with it a bit. It's an interesting idea. We don't see a lot of films about killers who are just like, I don't want to be a killer, you know, who's clearly mentally disturbed because non-mentally disturbed people don't kill people. You know, but then they're in the they're in, but he keeps finding himself in in situations where it's just like, I could, so I am, like I could kill this person right now, so I'm gonna do it, I, and it's like it's weird, it's it ends up yeah. being like a compulsion. I can't think of another film that has that same exact context here for yeah. the killer, so that is really interesting. It is well shot as well, but yeah, yeah, there's an extended cut. Which is the hour and 47 minutes, international cut, which is the hour and 38 minutes, which means for Americans. And, uh, I only watched the international cut. I just read about what the differences were with the extended cut. Does same here. Uh, there's Cinema in the Margins, 26 minutes, which, uh, has some critics talking about the director in general and this film specifically. Uh, the director and the Cannibal Man for about 18 minutes, which is perspective from the co-author of a 1996 book, uh, called, Kenosher, uh, I'm not even gonna say, I don't speak Spanish, so I don't even know what it means, but he's the author of a 1996 book that presumably is about this type of film. <laughs> and there's about a minute and a half of deleted scenes. I always just assume that the international cuts are always gonna have, I, I, no, I, here's what I assume. I assume the, the inverse. I assume that the American cuts are always gonna have gore cuts. And like, whatever's the international version or like, for instance, we mentioned the Argento discs. There was a, uh, an Italian or an English version. And I always just assume, okay, if I watch the English or American version, I'm going to, it's going to not have the eyeball getting poked out or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I typically will watch the, uh, the international versions because yeah. I assume those are going to be closer to quote unquote uncut. Well, most funny, of the time, a lot of the, depending on where it's from, because the international versions, if it's not an American film, will be the tamer version, usually. Like, if it's from Italy, the Italian version will be much goyer. Mm-hmm. The The international version means we trim this for English and audiences who okay. have much stricter, stricter stuff. Like, it works in reverse. Because, like, if you watch, yeah, if you watch, like, a, a British or American films, it's the international version. It means, like, yeah, they let them keep in all the gore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, so we're going to move on to a not-gory film, but that also is very concerned with death, called Afterlife. This is the latest Criterion release that we'll be covering, a 1998 Japanese film written, directed, edited by Hirokazu Korida. I didn't know what to expect when I read the description of this one. I thought of, uh, oh God, what is the one with the defending of your life is what I thought of yeah. when I read the description. The Albert Brooks film with people who stop off in this midway between heaven and hell and it's decided What's going to happen? Not even heaven and hell, but like just this. We don't know. Yeah, what, it just sort of says next. when you die, um, you're going to meet these people, social workers, social basically. workers, basically. Yeah, that that go. Okay, think of your happiest memory, and what we're going to do is we're going to make a movie version of your happiest memory that you can then turn around and watch. He means literally. They have like they're in like this, you know, office it's like a production, <laughs> and production they have a production studio. <laughs> And that, like with film equipment and props and shit, and like they can't, the, even though they have access that look like really badly kept VHS copies of like memories in their life where they can watch them, although third person, which is weird, but um, 
they go, we're going to, you get to live inside your favorite memory ever, forever and ever, which sounds like hell, really? Because wouldn't you be eventually like, oh, what is happening? <laughs> help, help. But but I think they answer that in the film. Yeah. Because there's a, yeah, because so to me, I, and I, it's an interesting question that I think they, they, they think of. And so they try to address it. And the fact that there's one of the, um, I don't want to call them patients. There's one of the recently deceased mm-hmm. who is senile and she thinks she's a little girl and she keeps collecting like buttons and rocks and they can't draw a memory from her. And the one of them realizes, Oh, she's already there. Like she's already reliving her happiest memory, which is when she was a little girl. Right. And she was collecting rocks and stuff. And that's where she, her mind already is. So we can't really do anything for her. And I was like, Oh, that's really interesting in concept. Uh, so they kind of touch on that as sort of like not, not as like a, not an unpleasant thing. You would, you would want to sort of live there by having a character sort of adopt it for herself as where she wants to be mentally. And there's like, you, you start with a group of people, including someone who seems to be relatively new a young lady. Mm-hmm. who's like, who's interning underneath a, another yeah. person to learn how to do the interviews and everything like this with these people. And John, I, came at this as I do often with things that touch on genre from a genre guy point of view of watching this, like how would this work? This does. And if you're looking at this film this way, this makes no sense whatsoever. You'll be like, wait, what? How would the first off, like we said, the pilot, like, wait, they reconstruct using cheap props and shit. Like they're like doing a thing. My favorite memory was an airplane. So they have guy in an airplane cockpit and they're, like rolling by big pieces of cotton on wires and stuff like wait what <laughs> like there's shit like that throughout this not just with that aspect of it where i'm like i don't even what i had a really hard time connecting with this movie i thought it was very well shot it's clearly very well acted there's some interesting stuff going on here that i suspect I just couldn't figure out what it was. You know what I mean? Like there's subtext that it's actually about that. I'm like, I don't know what you're getting at. That was I, I did not know anything about this. So this is like the opposite of the maid experience where I stopped halfway through and was like, what the hell is this movie even? And I looked it up. So this was one where I went in. I didn't read the back of the criterion. And I actually saved this one for last because I was like, this looks dry. Uh, let me make sure I'm very awake. <laughs> it's, it's pretty dry. Bring a gallon of water. And so um, I didn't read anything about it, sat down, started watching it, and was charmed like immediately because I didn't know what the plot was. And I was like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> what is this? Because it's so mundane. And it could have been like, oh, Tim Burton-esque. And it's like magical realism. But it's like, no, it's just like the afterlife is presented as like they're in like a crappy it looks like like a converted school like a japanese school you're making me want to remix this thing re-edit it with a tim burton like type soundtrack yeah you you put the beetlejuice soundtrack (laughs) on top of these really mundane dry social work yeah what we describe it sounds so it sounds so enticing but it's so small scale and so charming and the other thing that i think caught me right off the bat was i would i did not watch the special features on this I would not be surprised at all to find that the early interview subjects in the film were literally old people that they brought in and asked them their favorite memory and then just filmed it. And I was like, that's a really cool story to build around these interviews that you're getting from these elderly people. Because the first maybe 
half hour of the movie, maybe 20 minutes to a half hour are just people telling the stories of their favorite memories. And I was like, it, it's almost like a framing device built around a documentary in a way, because I was like, and I don't know, maybe they were scripted and the people were just really good actors, but it struck me as a casting call where they asked people to come in, shot the memories and then framed it in this film. Um, I, I really like this. It is very small scale. It is very, to me, um, very mundane. Everything about it is sort of mundane. Again, like the filming of the memories is even like very just regular film production stuff. If you're working with like no budget film production, it's talked about by modern reviewers of like that. It's a meditation on filmmaking itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's in there for sure. There's no question it's in there, but I don't think that's the point here. No, I think, I think it's just a small sort of little human story that's again i think i would not be surprised even to learn that the that the creation of the plot was maybe built to have people come in and describe their memories i i don't know but i liked it i liked it a lot and it's it's one of those that it could be you know (laughs) sometimes small movies are very delicate and they can get uh they can get knocked down with expectations and i think that with this, it's sort of like I had no expectations and I found it really warm and, and interesting the whole time. The, the other thing about it, um, uh, I've lost my train of thought here. Uh, <laughs> it's so, so rare. <laughs> let me, let me redirect and maybe you'll come back to okay. it. So there are some bonus features here. There's a commentary track by film scholar and a biographer of the uh, director, writer, editor, uh, Hirozaku, Hirokazu Korita, uh, uh, Linda C. Ehrlich, who talks about this film. Uh, and there are a few deleted scenes, and that's about it. There's a booklet essay um, uh, from one of the actors who was involved with the film who reflects on his memories of it. I don't know, man. John, this is going to be that movie this week that I'm like, I could not connect with this at I loved all. it. Absolutely loved it. And I, and I remember what I was going to say now. Uh, the other thing that was odd about it was I, there was, there's a timeless quality to it where I was sitting there going, I had no idea when it came out. And I was, and you can't peg it just by watching it. Like, like I'm 30 minutes, 40 minutes into it. And I'm like, when did, like, how have I never heard of this before? Like, how has nobody ever mentioned this movie to me before? And I'm like, it looks like maybe it came out. The only thing that was giving it away was it was obviously shot on film and not digital. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I would assume this came out just a couple of years ago, except that I can tell that it's shot on film, yeah. which which makes me know it has to be more than 10 years ago. And then to find out it was in the late 90s, my mind was blown. I was like, how have I gone this long with no one bringing this up? Because it certainly feels like a movie people would talk about. I mean, even if you, you didn't know. like it, I think I would have heard of it. Outside of like... You know, I mean, the most already little, like, if you're hanging out all the time at Austin Film Society Theater, like, talking <laughs> with the, the guy who runs it, it'd be like, it's, it's one of the greatest films ever made. And we're like, yeah, nobody but you knows that. So I think, <laughs> I do think to, if I am going to be critical, I do think it runs out of a little bit of narrative steam at the end. Yes. Um, but <laughs> I was, I was with it. I really liked this movie a lot. 
I wish I shared it with you because I went into this very like, oh man, this sounds cool. And I tend to like Japanese meditative, like uh, more like Ozu type films. And like, I'm ready for this. Mm -hmm. And I just was super bored by this. I'm sorry. I never connected with it at all. I'm just going to give you the criterion. You can have it. (laughs) Thank you. Like, I never do it. My wife, thank God she doesn't listen to my podcast because she'd be mad. She's like, don't you get rid of any of those criteria. I have like mm. 30 criterions of movies. I can't stand that. <laughs> she's like, don't you get rid of those criteria. Hey, I'm just glad to hear somebody say that because I think they end up being like, it's sort of like people who bought spawn in the, in the early two thousands, just because it's what they bought in the nineties. They're like, well, I'm still buying spawn. Do you like it? Nope. I don't even read it, but I can't stop now. And it's like, okay. Oh, I and, stopped. Yeah. And it's like, there are people that collect criterions just to collect them. Like I yeah. have all, I love seeing all my spine numbers in a row. And it's like, how many of those movies do you like? Uh, I love seeing all my spine numbers in a <laughs> exactly. row. It's like, okay. You know, man, when they put out their ghost dogs and what have you, I'm excited as fuck. But like sometimes there's shit you're like, I thought was not good. Yeah. You know, I mean, the same with any given company. I don't know. Like Arrow, love them to death. Sometimes they put out the best shit in the world. And other times they put out stuff. You're like, why did you put this out? <laughs> Why did you spend money and time on this? It's, you know, whatever. Opinions be what they are. Everybody's got some blind spots in their movie radar, no matter how many movies they've watched. Everybody has those films that you're like, oh, this is indisputably regarded as a classic, and I've never gotten to. I mean, like, what's yours? What's one for you? Oh, I just knocked a couple out, and so I think my I think my new one now is Tombstone. Because oh. for a while, it was Saving Private Ryan and Castaway. And I've knocked those out during lockdown. And I think, I think my new one is Tombstone. Most of mine are old black and white era stuff that I've mm. still not gotten. And I've seen a lot more than most people. Like High Noon, I've still somehow never seen. Yeah. And that's on my, okay, I gotta finally watch this fucking movie. Right. But then there are those movies <laughs> that are for some reason on every, a lot of people's list of like, oh, I've seen it like a hundred times and you just never got around to seeing it despite the fact that you were in the era where everybody else saw it and you just didn't because it seemed mediocre and maybe even bad and you never had any interest. But here we are 20, 30 years later and people call it a classic and even do remakes of it. And that's why we're getting to the new Blu-ray release of Overboard which neither John nor I had ever actually seen before. No, and I had a – growing up, this is the crazy part. I had a friend whose mother's favorite movie was Overboard and would watch it all the time. Like, And I know this because, like, she had had it on video cassette. And every weekend or so, like, anytime I was hanging out, like, she would talk about watching Overboard or be watching Overboard – and I never – it wasn't even like one of those movies that I saw, like Predator, for instance, where I saw p- bits and pieces of it to the point that I finally, when I watched it, I was like, oh, I've actually seen all this individually. i just never seen it glued together. Right. Overboard was one that somehow was able to avoid even really knowing what the movie was about, to tell <laughs> you the truth, until I, until I sat down to watch it like a week ago. Yeah, I knew what it was about because I had watched the remake. Ah, okay. Which, which is not good. Okay. And, and also, like, I'm a huge Kurt Russell fan. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you probably are too, right? You know, I, I didn't think I was until I was. It was one of those things where I think it was like a realization. It's the same, uh, same thing happened to me with Star Trek where it's like, I'm not really a Star Trek fan. And then suddenly I realized like, oh no, I am. Like, 
yeah, I've consumed too much of it and enjoy too much of it. X-Men is another example of like, mm. I'm an Avengers guy, not an X-Men guy. And then I have 300 issues of X-Men and it's right. like, oh, I guess I am an X-Men guy. You're an yeah. X-Men fan. So like Kurt Russell's that way where so it wasn't an immediate connection like with other actors where it was like, oh, I love this guy. It was just, you show up in enough movies I love and suddenly I'm like, okay, by proxy, I love Kurt Russell. I mean, I've always liked him since the computer wore, t- wore tennis shoes, man, mm-hmm. when I saw when I was a kid. Like, I, I like that guy. What is it? And then the thing, right? Uh, 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 my favorite, my absolute hands down favorite film by him, with him, Big Trouble in Little China, which I have rewatched probably 50 times. Mm-hmm. I mean, just I quote it to death. I, I wish I could have all the merch. I wish there was more merch that I could wear of it. But Overboard with his longtime lady, Goldie Hawn, who I also really, really like, but have mixed about her film career. When she's great, she's great. Yeah. But she was in a lot of shitty movies, too. But nonetheless, you always like, oh, I like Goldie Hawn. She's great. Mm-hmm. This is, up until just recently, one of only two films they ever did together where they were both the primary stars. Uh, the, the other one being the sequel to the Santa Claus one on Netflix, the, the, the newest or third one that they did just recently. You know what I'm yeah. talking about? Yeah. yeah. Santa Chronicles or whatever yeah, it's called. Which are surprisingly entertaining. But Overboard, 1987, directed by Gary Marshall, who just does the shit out of rom-coms. No question. Mm-hmm. Like he was the rom-com guy in many ways. Goldie Hawn playing a, a rich heiress, Joanna Staten who lives on basically a yacht with her husband, Grant Staten III, uh, played by the great Edward Herman. Yeah. <laughs> I love Edward Herman. <laughs> I'm sorry. Whatever he pops up and everything, he's like, oh, it's that guy. I love that guy. Uh, she's a bitch. Sorry. She is. She's just straight up a horrible, horrible, like, cliche of a rich white lady here. Like, I mean, like, this would hold up today where you'd be like, yeah, terrible, terrible, rich wo- white woman. And they hire because uh, she wants a new closet for her clothes and shoes. They hire a local carpenter, Dean Prophet, played by, you know, the aforementioned Kurt Russell, who is a, you know, a simple guy. He's a local, he's a man of the earth, mm-hmm. if you will. And uh, he doesn't like her. She doesn't like him. He puts in, like, you know, does all his work. And she's like, oh, uh, this is oak. I wanted cedar. He's like, you didn't say that. You didn't even mention that. It's like, well, I'm not paying you. He's like, are you what? No. And they get into a huge argument and he's like, fuck this. And the the crew of the yacht are like kind of secretly applauding while he's telling her off or what a terrible bitch she is. And she throws him and his whole toolkit into the water and the yacht sails away. Right. What ends up happening is through a, you know, a series of slapstick incidents. She falls overboard, thus the title, and ends up being rescued by a garbage scow, but she has amnesia, taken to the hospital, has no idea who she is. He sees this on the local news, like, who is this woman? He's like, I know who this woman is. And he himself is like raising multiple kids who are just hopeless brats. You know, his wife has died, but he's living, and he's not a good dad. He's a helicopter dad. Mm -hmm. That's putting it nicely. And he's like, I'm going to get my revenge by pretending she's my wife and have her come take care of my kids, which is where we get into the stuff that is squicky. Oh, it's awful. It's not what the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Yeah. the uh, Like, oh, you put in the cabinets I didn't want. I'm not going to pay you. Does not mean 
you can like enslave me. <laughs> like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. It's so what he does to her is so much worse than what she does to him. I mean, I feel like this film would have been a lot more palatable on that level if they didn't actually end up having sex at some point when she still thought she was his wife. Yeah. And it puts it off for so long, you think it's never going to happen because he's like, oh, no, 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 can't go there. And you're like, all right, I guess I'm still kind of with this. But it finally does. And you're like, dude, like maybe in future re-edits of this, you should just cut that sequence out of the film. Yeah. And I mean, it's not a spoiler to say in a romantic comedy, like they're going to end up together. And that was another thing to me that was like sticky was like the movie puts the weight of the decisions, the the, the basically the the sort of like emotional turmoil of what should I do is placed on her at the end. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, he should really be dealing with some of this as well because he he gets off basically scot-free and I'm like, I would rather see him dealing with the emotional turmoil and then her almost coming to him to help him deal with it. And that's how they end up like getting together. But it's all on her and she's the one that's really torn. And oh, those kids that I thought were mine, they need a mother. It's so 1950s in the way that it glorifies the sort of like, oh, there's a dad and a mom and they, and a dad and a mom take care of kids. And yeah. that's what their purpose is, is to work and take care and of children. Even, even and ends, that's the life for me. And that's what I want. So the whole, like, until we have another one and you're like, Oh, you gag in your mouth it's, a little bit. Uh, like, uh, it's oh, so, God. it's so, as the kids say, problematic. Uh, really? But damn, really it's not funny. Yes. That's <laughs> the biggest problem is that you watch it. You're like, fuck with all the shit going on here. That should be like, that is hateful. Like that. You're like, this is terrible. It's kind of charming and delightful at the same time. I know. I, I, know. I kept getting mad at myself for liking this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's regressive. Its politics are awful. It's, uh, I mean, you could say that he raped her and not be wrong. But the kid that talks like Pee Wee Herman makes me laugh yeah. every single time he's yes. on the screen. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. like I, I did not know somehow. And again, this is one of those things of how did I not know? How did nobody tell me? Why were, why were there no articles written spotlighting the kids from Overboard? Because the three boys from Overboard are so funny and given so much to do that's funny. Uh-huh. The, the, the kid, <laughs> Roy, and the other kid that talks like Pee Wee Herman, and they like, they're, they're bad. They're, they're bratty kids because they haven't been raised right. And then Goldie Hawn comes in and raises them right, but they don't necessarily lose their personality. Like they just become better kids. They just, yeah. they keep their personalities. I mean, those kids like stole the show for me. Like it, they were often yeah. the, the source of the most laugh out loud hilarity was coming yeah. from these punk kids. I mean, this isn't even faintly nuanced. If you're looking for anything even mildly resembling what could happen in reality, this is not going to be your movie. But does the remake try to like, I know this, we're not reviewing the remake, but how does the remake handle the problematic I aspects? barely of it? remember okay. it now. Like okay. it, it gender swapped. Well, okay. And I guess everyone's like, well, it's okay. Because it's a girl, it's yeah. The reverse, it's, yeah. Which it's not, for the record. <laughs> I, I, remember, I feel like that's the one thing I remember going, how is this any better? Yeah. Like, I, I, I remember we hated it, but I didn't hate this. And maybe it's just because Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn are both charming and they loved each other like crazy in real life. And so they have in Hence chemistry on screen together. Even when they're supposed to be hating each other, it's kind of delightful seeing them bash at each other. 
it's a nice little movie with, as you said, just horrific political <laughs> and sociopolitical <laughs> undertones. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. You know, it is what it is. It's part of history now. You can watch it and gauge for yourself whether Can't or not. Can't unmake it. You, you, you watch it and gauge for yourself whether or not you can deal with that and like all that shit enough to get past it and just enjoy the charm that's there, which is unquestionably there. But I can't blame you if you can't. Yeah. You know, uh, there's a one extra feature about 14 minutes writing overboard, which is the interview with the screenwriter who also wrote Mrs. Doubtfire, a film I did not like as much as this movie. Although everybody loved that movie when it came out, but I mean, I did enjoy, you know, Robin Williams and drag, but that one also was problematic. I was violently ill during that movie and I, I went to see it with a friend and like was, my stomach was not in a good way. Um, and so when I, what I associate with that movie is a mild case of food poisoning. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Well, that's not good. I, it's not a great movie. I, mean, I know people will tell you otherwise, but I think they were young when they saw it. There's a lot of films that you, we, we think are better than they are because we were the right age for it when we saw it. I, so this, this woman, and it's funny, these are both from a female screenwriter, right? So, mm-hmm. and it's funny that her movies are, sell this particular idea of the man knows better. Mm-hmm. That's a really weird tack for, like a theme to run through a female screenwriter's films. Well, there's a, there's, it's not just that here because there's definitely like playing with feminism here where she's like, cause he's, his shit is like wrong. He's doing everything totally wrong and he needs someone to straighten him out. Mm-hmm. Right. And she comes in with like a kind of a firm hand eventually. And it's like, and in fact, straightens shit out, straightens the kids out and straightens him out. But one could argue that's not really feminism. It's, you know, the nuclear family. It won't work without a man. And right. A woman. Well, he's, and that's what he's telling her she is. So she becomes what he tells her that she is. You are this. You are a mother. This is your personality. This is how you behave. And she kind of goes, oh, I do? Oh, okay. And it's like, just adopts that for herself. Well, let's talk about one of the most <laughs> underrated and for unfortunately forgotten about comedies of this same period, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, directed by the mm. great Carl Reiner, the legendary Carl Reiner, who unfortunately left this earth uh, just about a year ago, I believe now. God, I was so sad. Is that what is that what the problem is with 2021? I, I was so is sad. Is that why everything is so crappy him and mel brooks are like have been best friends their whole lives Mm -hmm. like they're literally once a week they get together smoke cigars drink whiskey and spend all night hanging out and talking and i'm just like i love that these two 80 90 year old dudes who just you know couldn't be separated from each other yeah they're the best of friends and when he died i i wanted to write a letter to mel brooks and say i'm so sorry you lost your friend you know, because yeah. <laughs> I feel it, man. Reiner was a legend. You're a legend. Like both of y'all deserve the ultimate respect. And one of the Reiner films that's most forgotten about is Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which is unfortunate. It's one of the Steve Martin films, which is most forgotten about as he plays the lead character here in this film. Uh, Rigby Reardon, who is a private detective in the Philip Marlowe vein. But here's the thing. This is not a drama. This is a straight up satire of film noir that is so meta that it goes, why don't we just take a bunch of clips from the best film noirs and try and integrate them in the film so Steve Martin can play off of classic 
film noir actors in their films like Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman and James Cagney and Joan Crawford and Betty Davis and Kirk Douglas and Ava Gardner and Cary Grant and Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake and Burt Lancaster and Charles Lawton and Fred McMurray and Ray Millen and Edmund O'Brien and Vincent Price. By the way, I still watch the Vincent and Price one and now I really have to. I'm like, mm. wait, what is that? I forgot that the Vincent Price was in a noir film. And Barbara Stanwyck and Lana Turner. I mean, like, I as a kid, I watched this film. When it came out, I mean, I say kid, I was 12, so I guess that's still kid. And I loved it. And I had never seen any film noir. And I was like, what is this? I, I remember I was so obsessed with it. Like my first year of high school drama class, like a year and a half later, I was like trying to like convince them to let us do a play about a hard-boiled detective with like a fedora and a trench coat. And that all came from watching Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, where I'm like, this is a tribute, a loving tribute and a satire of all those films with Steve Martin, honestly, and I think one of his best performances in his career, quite frankly, uh, Playing a guy who is, you know, like I said, a Philip Marlowe type who's approached by Juliet Forrest, who is played by the very sexy Rachel Ward. Holy shit, I forgot how hot Rachel Ward was back then. Uh, who's a daughter of a scientist and noted scientist and cheesemaker. You know, cheesemaker obviously being more important in my point of view. But uh, who her father has died and she's, I think he was actually murdered he starts uncovering stuff along the way, which is largely this list that says friends of Carlotta and enemies of Carlotta. And people start being killed along the way. And he's sort of investigating the stuff. It all ends up in a foreign country, uh, <laughs> intermixed with one of the greatest ever fitting two things together that don't fit the Vincent Price stuff of like a chase through like a big carnival type festival with fireworks and dancing. Like, that sequence is like unassailably brilliant. <laughs> like, Oh my God, I can't believe how amazing this is for this, for a film that's sort of like Zelig before Zelig, yeah. you know? Uh, I love the shit out of this movie. I, I think it's charming as fuck. I think it's also a fantastic, from my own personal experience saying I can prove it, introduction to kids to film noir. Like, if you want to tell your kids about film noir and, like, say, hey, this is this really cool thing, this is how you do it, quite frankly. You make them watch Dead Men Don't Wear a Plaid, and they'll be like, oh, that was really funny. Wait, that's film noir? It's like, well, sort of. <laughs> I saw this in the theaters as well when I was a kid. Uh, and I'm trying to think of the age difference. What was the year of release? Uh, the year of release was 1982. Okay, so I was seven in 82. And I can vividly remember the day that I saw it, but I didn't like it. Not when I was seven years old, I did not well, like it. You were it. seven. You're a little too young. I was too young for it. Yeah, when I was seven, I didn't. I didn't dig it. Um, and didn't really had been kind of dismissive of it my whole life. Based basically, like based on the fact that I didn't like it when I was seven <laughs> years old. And then I did not know at the time, and I don't know what educated to, it to me later. Um, that the movie had been constructed of pieces of an old movie, hmm. of old movies, I should say. Um, and I didn't know that. I didn't know that it was sort of like built around. You just uh, didn't remember that. These scenes. Well, I don't think I realized it at seven. I don't yeah. think that absorbed. I don't think at seven, I just was taking it as like, this is a Steve Martin comedy that's sure. in black and white. So it looks old. And I don't think I, because I, 
I would have, I may have had some awareness of like Humphrey Bogart and stuff like that from like Looney Tunes cartoons, but he would have probably been the end of that awareness. Mm-hmm. And I may not have even known that that person was dead. I'm sure the only person I knew at this point in this film from those clips was Bogart because my f- father forced me to watch Casablanca yeah. with him regularly. And I loved it. I love Casablanca, but like I knew who Bogart was. Other yeah. than that, I'm like, I didn't know Fred McMurray was outside of like Flubber. Yeah. Yeah. You know? uh, so. I, I can't remember. I think I was just on a Steve Martin kick, and or it was on sale on Vudu or something like that. Um, and I ended up buying it, and and it was, was like really funny. It's like really funny. Mm-hmm. Like um, probably you know, there's this run of Reiner um, Steve Martin comedies. I, I I'm not the biggest fan of The Lonely Guy, no. But there's like The Jerk and this and uh, Man with Two Brains. Yeah. That are really in the neighborhood and, and stand toe to toe with some of the stuff that like Mel Brooks was doing. Absolutely. Um, that just don't get, for whatever reason, and I'm not entirely sure why, they aren't considered in the same way as like the Mel Brooks classics, but they're both like very, like spoofy, like nothing is made to be taken seriously. Everything is for comedy's sake. Uh, I, I think and there's a purity to that that's like, you know. I, I think because Brooks stuff, appealed to a younger crowd than mm. Reiner stuff did. All of Reiner's stuff is a little older, a little more subtle um, and nuanced. And Brooks is playing with like really direct overt puns. Yeah. You know, what knockers, what yeah. have you, you know, like that was not Reiner's style, but they're both doing that. You're right. They're both doing like that same, like we're satirizing stuff. We love. Well, even, up. even, you know, I think the other thing too, is that both of them ingest and, de- and deliver back movies like Mel Brooks, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, he's digesting movies. Even even Life Stinks is like Preston Sturgis digested and sort of like re redone, not not remade, but sort of like the same kind of thing that Tarantino does, where it's like yeah. I've ingested this, I've made it my own, and now I'm putting it out on screen. And you see things like the structure of the Jerk, where it's like a, a biographical movie about this. <laughs> Rags to riches story, which I honestly think is pretty Sturges itself. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. very Sturges, or the or the stuff in Man with Two Brains that's very much like, oh, this is a '50s sci-fi movie to the point that like one of the most memorable comedy scenes is when they're in the castle and he keeps trying to lean up against the stone wall and his arms just go through it because the stone walls are made out of styrofoam <laughs> and it's a visual gag and it's never really called out or nobody's <laughs> like it's just you as an audience member know that the stone walls of the castle are made of styrofoam so Reiner's wink to you is yeah the, the characters are also going to discover this by putting their arms through the styrofoam yeah um and and again, and this movie is the most obvious example of that, where it's I've ingested these movies that influence me and that I enjoy and that entertain me, and now I'm going to now I'm going to I don't want to say regurgitate, but yeah, it's sort of it's like they they sit inside of you and inspire you creatively, and then you create something that is both unique. It stands on its own. It is its own piece of art where you can recognize the love of other pieces of art in that piece of art. It's a um, it's a, a comedy, a satire. But based entirely out of love, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, like, I want to do this film, but I'm not the guy to make a film like this. So I want to make a film that is playing with this. Was it, is it, what's the line? Is it, let me make you some of my famous eggs or, or coffee? Is it, let me make you some of my famous coffee? 
There's like a whole yeah. sequence where the whole sequence where he's pouring the coffee into the the thing yeah. and it just doesn't stop for yeah. like a minute and a half where he's just pouring the coffee that, out of an endless bag. My favorite line and my favorite single line in the whole thing is that's never going to heal. <laughs> the gag where he keeps getting shot in the exact same she location, suck, <laughs> sucking the bullet out in like a overtly it's a blowjob yeah. joke. But yeah, um, I just the whole he has this thing where his there's a background thing where a cleaning woman, something in his past. And so anytime someone says cleaning woman, he goes crazy and it's wonderful. Every time it happens, you're like, Oh my God, that was amazing. That's Martin at his just comedic best. Yeah. And it plays out to great effect and in the smartness of the script in the very final act, where I'd forgotten about it. They put, take enough of a break from it where it turns into like sort of the, the savior moment towards the end. I'm like, Oh, that's wonderful. With Carl Reiner himself playing a Nazi. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, this is delightful. Everybody should give this a chance. It's not like we compare it to Mel Brooks. I think you can intellectually compare it to Mel Brooks, but you can't aesthetically compare it to Mel Brooks. They're very going yeah. with the different like type of humor, even though they're playing in the same field. I think this is a much more nuanced film than a lot of the stuff that Brooks was doing, which isn't a criticism of Brooks's stuff. It's just a different type of humor. Yeah. And I really feel like as an adult, especially someone who loves classic film noir, this is not something that was designed to play specifically to children. It was designed to play to actually slightly older people who did love these films. And it is delightful. Yeah, it's great. I've watched most of the film noir films that they, they put in here now Mm. and watching them now from that perspective going, Oh, I forgot that scene was in here. Oh my God. How great is that? I almost wish that they would go back and do a sequel now with Steve Martin, which you go like, Steve, like your career is kind of like, what's going on? I mean, if you were to announce you were doing a sequel to Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, can you hear the squeeze coming out of like people (laughs) of a certain age? You'd be like, seriously, where you like incorporate like, Hey, it's like, and now it's the 80s and he's still alive and older and you can incorporate a bunch of like neo-noir stuff scenes in it. Please do that. Please do that. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of bonus features here. There's an audio commentary track on it, but not a lot. We're going to move on to our next one, which is I was actually I met John. I was kind of mildly dreading this and not because I disliked the film in question, but because it had been long enough since I'd seen it that I was like, I've been defending this film for a very long time on multiple levels, and I didn't want to have to come back and go, oh, this is shit. Like, a lot of people say it is. And that's Dune. David Lynch's Dune. This is now being reissued by Arrow in 4K. My immediate response was, hooray! (laughs) I really want to watch this again. And then I saw it wasn't the extended edition, which, if I remember correctly, I did, in fact, feel was by far the better version, if you're a fan of the source material. Not necessarily if you're a fan of David Lynch films, but much longer version. This is not that. Maybe Arrow will do that at some point, but this is just the theatrical edition re-released in 4K of the 1984 adaptation of Frank Herbert's 1965 novel of the same name with Comic Laughlin in his film debut, because this is before Lynch worked with him on Blue Velvet, uh, as Paul Atreides, the lead character of this Huge, epic sci-fi drama that has 
is often put in the same terms of Lord of the Rings, of like, this is the science fiction Lord of the Rings. You know, I mean, it's that good. It's that well written. It's that epic. And I agree with that literarily. Mm. Absolutely. I think it's on that level. I've read it multiple times. I read the whole series multiple times. The problem here is there's just no good way in two plus hours to tell the story of the entire story of the first book of Dune and make it emotionally mean anything to make it work. So what you get is a film that you either are going to analyze from the viewpoint of I'm a fan of the book. And so what level in relation to the book did this work? Or I'm a fan of David Lynch. And what level as a David Lynch film did this work? Or I don't know either one of those things that well. I just want to watch a big sci-fi movie. I like Star Wars. <laughs> How does that relate to that? And that third thing, I don't think that's going to work for you. If you're that guy, this isn't going to work for you at all. This is not for you. I think the, the audience most pleased are the ones that generally are like, I just, I'm happy there's any version of Dune. You know, uh, this overindulges in voiceover to try and get past stuff. Like there's tons and tons and tons of here's their thoughts. So it voices over the thoughts. I think maybe there's a thing happening here. Like it's half the dialogue is just people thinking in this yeah. movie. It just rushes right from one thing to another Characters that are huge in this book are barely have anything to do here, but well, fuck. Like <laughs> the Fremen girl who is the mother of Paul's children, played by, uh, what's her name? Uh, Rachel, uh, is it Rachel? You're talking about Sean Young? Sean Young. I literally does nothing in this film but fuck Paul Atreides. Like in the extended version, I remember she had a lot more to do, but it was mm. like, wow, she's just here as a sex object and the mother of his children. There's a lot of stuff that's, I'm having to say problematic because this film is so confused with cramming, trying to cram so much shit in it that I don't even know how to attack it on that. I don't think you can attack it on that level. It's just, that's a distant aside, but there's so much beautiful cinematography. The, the, the sense of visuals of the way they created this world is just gorgeous. I mean, the mm -hmm. sandworms, the giant sandworms, you know, of D the planet Dune that are like both the threat and the savior of the planet are amazing and really well represented. The score by, I can't believe I'm saying this. The score by Toto is really, really good mm -hmm. and strong. Uh, there's an enormous cast of great people in this film, like Brad Dorif as uh, Peter DeVries, uh, Francesca Anis as Lady Jessica, uh, Jose Ferrer as the Emperor Shaddam IV, Linda Hunt as Shoutout Mapes, uh, uh, Virginia Madsen as Princess Ireland, who was going to be a much bigger character in the presumed second film that never happened, but here just serves as a sort of intro and outro narrator more than anything else. Uh, Jack Nance, who re repeatedly worked with David Lynch, including being the primary character in Eraserhead. Uh, Jurgen, Jurgen Proch now as uh, Paul's dad. Patrick Stewart, yay, as, as basically um, Captain Picard with a mullet. <laughs> uh, Gurney Halleck, who's the warrior teacher of Paul. Sting, playing the, the son and sadistic bad guy of the, the, the main bad guy in the film. Uh, Dean Stockwell, Max von Sydow. It's got a great, great cast. Also, I never noticed this before this time, but David Lynch 
has a cameo in this film and I never noticed it oh. before. He plays a spice worker who's just like, help, we need help. Uh, like, oh, that's David Lynch. He was so young then. I found upon rewatching this, I still like this film. I, I get everybody's problems with it. I 100% get everybody who's like, what the fuck? I feel like, I feel like I see more. I feel like this is a movie that over the past 10 years has been reappraised. Yeah. Um, and I feel like more people like it now than 20 years ago. Um, yeah. I, my relationship with it was seeing it as a kid and not really like it's cool. You know, it's like one of those things that it was like in the 80s, when you're a kid and you're told something is kind of cool, you're kind of like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> it's like this has spaceships in it. This has like uh, weird invisible suits that you can sword fight in and it's like okay like and it's in the toy aisle you know what i mean so there's like yeah. this sort of like all right i guess this is sort of like in the neighborhood of something i like but then it also sort of misses you as a kid or at least miss yeah. me was just like it wasn't aimed at you kids. watch it and it's like this is kind of boring it wasn't aimed at kids yeah. at all and yeah. and so in my head i'm like i remember it i'm going like through the years it's it's i remember it being very interesting even if it was kind of a dull movie that it was, it had enough in it that I found of interest. Mm -hmm. And I ended up being that I bought it on Blu-ray for like peanuts. It was like five or six bucks on Blu-ray or something. So I bought it and I watched it all really liked, I, I thought it looked really good on Blu-ray. It was like, okay, cool. This is, you know, from the very opening scene with the navigator talking to the emperor, you know, yeah. it's really looked great. Blu-ray looked great. 4k looks even better, but the Blu-ray looked great. And uh, I watched the whole thing, and I'm like, okay, like it's. I still kind of have the same problems, but as an adult, like I get it a little bit more than I did as a kid. Yeah. And then a friend came over and asked me, "How's the Dune Blu-ray?" And I said, "Oh, it looks gorgeous. Let me show you." And I put the Dune Blu-ray in, and what I discovered was, having just watched it the day before, I had such a greater amount of context for what they were talking about that plot pieces started falling into place in a way that they had not for me before. And it was only because I turned around and watched it like literally the next day. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh, cause I had not read the book. So I was like, Oh, that's what they're talking about. Oh, that's who these witches are. Like everything was sort of, it was like, <sighs> you're watching it the first time and you have no context for anything. You can't have and coming back around. Time. I had context suddenly. And yeah. I'm like, wait, I now know what they're talking about where I didn't before. Yeah. That actually then led me to read the book, and then I was like, okay. Oh, this is a Okay, <laughs> like, this is what... And it's funny, it people talk about the book not being faithful, and it's as faithful as, like, most movie adaptations. Like, sure. it's... It's it's, it, it's a it misses, what it misses. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Watchmen in that it's like, yeah, the stuff is in there, but it's missing the emotional toll. So, for instance, Jessica and Yui's betrayal of, of the family, for instance, is yeah. like... That's a big plot point in the book because Yui and Jessica are like best friends. Mm -hmm. He's her most trusted confidant. And, and the, the, the revelation in the book that he sells her out is a big turning point in the book. Whereas in the movie, it's sort of like, I think she may even think in dialogue, like Dr. Yui is my closest confidant. And that may be the only time it's said is like in her own mind. Yeah. And there's no other emotional connection. You don't see them hanging out or being friends or like, there's no, there's nothing that supports that in the film other than that. Hap it happens in the plot. It happens in the plot of the book. It happens in the plot of the movie. Yeah. That's a very shallow reading. Yeah. And it's like, it reminds me it's it again, 
it's Watchmen-esque in that particular way of like, no, it's faithful. We hit the beats. And it's like, yeah, you hit the beats, but there's nothing there. Like, yeah. you know, like freaking <laughs> Dr. Manhattan and Laurie at the, at the whole of the, uh, uh, the impact in the movie when in the book, when they go to Manhattan and they see all the dead bodies everywhere, Lori has a breakdown, starts vomiting. And it's like, get me out of here now. And in the movie, Lori's taken to the edge of where the Manhattan takes to the edge of the stuff. And she sees, and she's like, Oh, this is bad. And right. then like leaves. Not and the it's same like, impact. yeah. And it's like, yeah, they're the same, but they're not the same. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of that between Dune the film and Dune the book where yeah. it's sort of like, yeah, they're it, for people to say it's nothing like the book is actually, I think incorrect. Yeah. It's just a, it's just a very surface level reading. Yeah, exactly. And honestly, I, and it doesn't matter how many times I see Dune, the last like 45 minutes of this movie are just a big nothing burger to me. Like mm. basically from the point that he kind of like all the stuff at the beginning, all of the setup, all of them arriving at Arrakis and being shown around is all great. All and the world to, building is cool. To me, kind of once he starts hooking up with the Fremen. Well, because it moves too The movie's fast. not interesting at it, all. It moves and too that's fast. when and you and you have like 40 minutes of it and it's so effing boring. The movie spends the whole you know, first half of it going, oh, let's build up this world and it's interesting and then it's like let's speed through all the Fremen stuff. Yeah. Which is the you know, the big part of the book. And you're like, wait, what? Did you not care about this shit? Like, you just moved through it so fast. I, I always come at this because I've read the book multiple times. And, I, like, I'm watching this as a, like I said, cliff notes of this book. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I like all the visuals. I like what Lynch is doing visually. I like a lot of his casting. A lot of stuff to like there on that level. But taken as a movie outside of all that, it's kind of hard to parse. I've never, I've read the book before I saw the movie, even as a kid. So I'm like, I don't necessarily know how to parse it outside of that i don't know i I still think it's very well worth watching but i don't think you're going to get anything out of it unless if you're half watching it Mm -hmm. if you're like checking your phone and shit between it like because it's too dense there's too much information yeah i actually recommend the best way to watch it is to turn around and watch it again like (laughs) watch it twice yeah yeah. literally watch it put the minute it stops start it up again and suddenly it'll click into place with you if it didn't before but it's it's a gorgeous 4K. I will say the biggest noticeable difference to me is in the effects work. And I don't know what they did, but I, I would assume that they went and cleaned up matte lines because the the biggest visible difference to me between the existing Blu-ray and the 4K, I mean, beyond the 4Ks, you know, gonna the HDR and everything makes it prettier anyways. There are noticeable there are noticeable like the artifacts of sort of like we cut this spaceship out and it's like moving, we're moving a picture of a spaceship across (laughs) another picture. Yeah. And that stuff looks more seamless. Not necessarily that they went back and fixed anything with CG, but it looks like they cleaned up edges on stuff that was, uh, that was done with that kind of like matte style. Yeah, it's uh, no question effects. the best looking version yeah. of this out there so far. And there's a lot of bonus features. Yeah, I actually, yeah, I've seen this so many times at this point because it has become since that Blu-ray purchase, it has become a a yearly, if not bi-yearly, watch where I'm watching huh. it like a couple times. I've seen it quite a few times at this point. And with this particular watch, I actually watched just the audio commentary because I've seen the film so many times at this oh. point that I sat through and. And watched the uh, the commentary track, which uh, was which very brand, informative. Brand new one by uh, film historian Paul M. Salmon, and there's another brand new audio commentary by Mike White of the Projection Booth podcast. I don't know which one you. you I think I listened to the Mike White one. Okay, yeah, it's really good. I presume that's not the 
director. Not the same Mike White. Not the School of Rock, White Lotus guy. Okay, fair enough. There's a lot of older stuff here as well. Impressions of Dune, a 2003 documentary on the making of the film. There's Designing Dune, a 2005 featurette looking back at the production designer. Dune FX, a 2005 featurette looking at the special effects. Dune models and miniatures. Um, another, these are all, the rest of these are all like 2005 or 2003. Uh, Dune models and miniatures looking at the model effects. Dune costumes. Uh, there's 13 deleted scenes from the film with a, a 2005 introduction by Rafaela De Lauren. How do you say that? De Laurentiis. De Laurentiis. I always have trouble. De Laurentiis. Obviously, Dino's uh, daughter. Um, Destination, a 1983 featurette uh, that was supposed to pr- promote the film at conventions and publicity events. There's uh, trailers and TV spots. And that's just the 4K, because this comes with a Blu-ray as well, which has a brand new featurette looking at the merchandise that promoted the film. Uh, the, from the guy who does the toys that made us, which is kind of cool. A uh, brand new feature out on the film's music score with interviews with, uh, Toto guitarist, keyboardist, and the film music historian Tim Grieving. A brand new interview with makeup effects artist Gianetto De Rossi filmed just now for this. And there's archival interviews of production coordinator, uh, star Paul Smith and makeup effects artist Christopher Tucker. And then the limited edition comes with a 60 page bound book with brand new writings about the film, a large fold out double sided poster with original artwork by Danielle Taylor, a six double sided postcard sized lobby card reproductions and limited edition edition packaging with reversible sleeve featuring original art by Danielle Taylor. This is a really loyal, loving release to a very, deeply mixed film that nonetheless there's nothing else like it that's ever been made like anyone who's like oh it was just like a crappy star wars like then you don't know what you're talking and it's crazy to me like honestly the first trailer especially i think the second trailer does a better job of getting out from under lynch's shadow but even the first trailer for the the new dune still echoed lynch's dune and i and i you know you some of that i think people went oh you can expect that because it's the same source material, but I'm like, N- the still suits kind of still look like the still suits. Like, there's a lot of the new Dune that's sort of still. Well, I mean, it's like the production designer on Lynch's Den was really specific to the stuff from the books, mm-hmm. who a lot of the stuff in there was taking from the previous huge amount of work, like up to like something like five, six million dollars worth of initial work for the version that was supposed to come out by Jodorowsky yeah. that it, that was supposed to involve Pink Floyd and the Rolling Stones and people like that doing the score and Giger doing the art designs. And I mean, if you ever get a chance to watch Aronoff, or, or, um, Jodorowsky's Dune, one of the greatest documentaries about a movie never happened, ever made, probably the greatest documentary on a film that never was made, then you should watch that. I don't think you can properly really appreciate everything going on here without having seen yeah, people did a lot of the work ahead of time. <laughs> there was um, – so there's a chain of theaters here in Texas called Shulman Theaters. And they're not a big chain. They're not like Cinemark or AMC or whatever. But I, I – uh, the chain's been around for like at, at this point close to 100 years. And I worked for Bill Shulman who was the son of the original Shulman that opened up these. And he, his story about the craziest – apparently back in the day they used to have to bid on movies – so they would they would bid on how much they would um sort of like the the way that the way that I understand that uh exhibition works is that 
when it comes out, you pay a certain percentage to the studio. And then the longer you keep the film, the more that percentage works its way down, which is why you see yeah. um, studio like a, a movie theater will play something for like six to seven weeks. And you're like, why is it still playing that? And it's like, it may be lucrative for them to play that because if they're still getting 20 people that may be making more than the big blockbuster, which depending on also the how, why the Alamo and chains like it have been so successful because they're marketing themselves around like very big reissues of films that they don't have to pay those percentages. Mm-hmm. You know? And so he would always tell the story about how crazy the Texas exhibition bidding war for Dune was, and he was not like a sci-fi nerd at all. Like this is like a good old boy, Texas, Texas guy. And his, one of his favorite stories to tell was just that he won Dune for the area and that it was the biggest bust and belly flop that he'd ever <laughs> taken as an ex, as an exhibitor. Yeah, it did that not he, that it, the, There was a frenzy over like, like these ex, these chains basically going, no, we want it. No, we want it. No, we'll give you this percentage. No, we'll give you this percentage. And it was like a, it was essentially a fight amongst the different regional theater owners. And he won that fight. And he said the first night he was like, it was standing room only. The place was packed wall to wall people. And then next and night. Then yeah, that was it. Yeah, like that was it. Because people walked out of it conf- I confused. I don't know what that was about. What yeah. happened? This was not. I wanted. I thought this was going to be the new Star Wars. It was decidedly not. It was never supposed to be. They marketed it very poorly. They actually. I remember when this came out. They came out with booklets mm-hmm. to translate shit. Like, to, oh, this is what this means. This is what the Bene Gesserit is. This is what the so you could. Open it up in the movie theater in case you forgot. I mean, like, it was just badly marketed, badly planned for what it was supposed to be. And, you know, I mean, thank God with this new re-release, it sounds like to all reports I've heard of early screenings that it's fucking fantastic. And with Villeneuve directing it and saying, this is literally like half the book we're doing for yeah. the first movie, which is the only way to tell the story is you can't tell that book in one movie unless it's six hours long like early reports are glowing and villanueva is the guy who's like hey i'm the guy you go to when you want to do hard sci-fi right (laughs) i mean is he proved with arrival and the blade runner sequel yeah that's the guy yeah Uh, so i hope that we're going to get the definitive dune there but this is not a bad dune it's just a rushed dune oh well let's talk about our last film Zack Snyder's Justice League. All right. Just tell me right off the bat, John. I know you saw Joss Whedon's Justice League. I know you saw Zack Snyder's Justice League. I mean, is there any reason if you've watched Joss Whedon's Justice League oh, God. to go and watch Zack Snyder's oh, Justice God. League? So, so let me think of how to frame this. So <laughs> this, this caught me right at the tail end of me working for like movies.com and Fandango and stuff. And this idea that, um, this had been a movie that was already finished and done. And even Zack Snyder being like, look at these cans. These, this is already a print that exists. Um, feeding this idea that this was a, that this was an existing movie and not just like chunks of ideas over time. So here's my deal. I didn't like justice league. I didn't Joss like, Whedon. I didn't like the Joss Whedon Justice League straight up. Didn't think it was fun. I thought it was a weird studio experiment to see if they could make a movie without creatives. It, Joss Whedon wasn't doing press for it. Zack Snyder wasn't doing press for it. It was a film created by a release date. 
And it felt to me like a, like producers going, Hmm, can we pull this off? Can we actually create a movie that doesn't involve directors and can just be pure IP and release date? What if we were able to get the creatives out of the process entirely of art? It really, to me, the first Justice League feels that way. And as much as I hated Batman versus Superman, and I did, it's awful. As much as I hated that movie, it was still a vision created by someone, even if yeah. I wasn't in line with it or disagreed with it. Justice League to me was weird. It was the only time I've ever sat in a theater and gone, this is not like, this is not a movie. This is an obligation to a Christmas window release date. <laughs> this is so strange. And I'm a comic book fan and I'm a bipartisan comic book fan. I don't, I, I, I'm not a Marvel zombie. I'm not a DC guy. I like what I like. I'm right. I'm literally you right. You saying in the that middle. makes me the way you said that makes me think you're more of a DC guy than a Marvel. Yeah, I'm not a Marvel zombie. I'm not a DC guy. I don't know. The DC guys don't have a name. Yeah, DC zombie. It's the same thing. Is it the same thing? Yeah. The only well, reason you say Marvel zombie in your head is because Marvel no, but, actually has a book called Marvel Zombies. But they they called that book Marvel Zombies because there was already a term Marvel Zombies. Let's be clear. I like both too. Anyways. Yeah. So so with that in mind. And with this other thing in mind, the myth of the Snyder Cut that Snyder created, and very canny because he ended up getting to release his movie. So the fact that he built this myth and was able to sell the idea that there was an entirely different cut that already existed. And that's the trick to me is like, I get that he had ideas on paper or storyboarded or prepared or in pre-production, but that does not mean that a cut exists. No, it didn't. Yeah. Yeah. And so the the quote-unquote Snyder Cut and the floating of the Snyder Cut, and ever, there's been a lot of ink spilled about the fandom around it and the, the charge for it and the ask for it. And I think there's also a lot of, I mean, to be completely frank, there's also a lot of eye-rolling from like people who've worked as professional critics, like myself, over this concept that we get paid to like certain movies and not paid to like other movies. Yeah, which is insane. And it's, it does not happen that way. Nobody it is, simply doesn't. No studio. You don't, and and ever honestly, paid do you think anyone. Warner Brothers wouldn't can't afford to cut us a check? This, this all like, came from that thing where Harry Knowles was flown out to the set of Godzilla. That's oh, where yeah. all this started. Where like in those early days when the studios didn't even know how to deal with this new fandom criticism, mm-hmm. they were like, we're flying you out to the set of Godzilla and you get to meet everyone on the set. And he came back with this glowing review and clearly, at least at the time, yeah. everybody hated Godzilla, right? Everyone's like, oh, all the, they're just bribing all the critics. <laughs> Believe me, that was a one-off. <laughs> so I'm, so I, so Justice League's coming now. So Justice League is announced. It's going to come out on HBO and I'm going, all right. I did not. I, I I actually like Man of Steel. Yeah. So I like Man of Steel. I, fine. I like the first half of it a lot. I kind of hate the second All right. half. I like Man of Steel. Okay. I don't like Justice League. All right. I hate Batman versus Superman. So bad. So I'm coming in from Batman v versus Superman. I'm coming in from Justice League, and now Zack Snyder's Justice League, and a lot and all the the quote unquote discourse, and I'm going like, all right, I'm not excited for it, but I'll watch it. Sure. I'll watch the damn that, thing that was because me. I'm as big, I'm big enough comic nerd that like, damn it, it, it feels like an obligation or a duty. Like I'm going to watch this thing. Well, I, mean, I have no expectations there, for it. They're like, there's literally three hours of this film or is footage that's new. 
mm-hmm. or at least that we've never seen before. Like, I think maybe 30 minutes of that was filmed brand new post the release of that, but there was a, like two and a half hours of it was stuff were filmed that Whedon chose not to use. So you're like, most of this movie, this four hour cut, we've never seen before. It was so immediately better. Yeah. <laughs> like, which I, I couldn't have been more shocked. I was, was, I was struck immediately like, oh, oh, this, <laughs> this is so much better right off the bat. Just even God, Chris, I don't know if you've seen the comparison, but I remember sitting in the theater going, what am I looking at right now in a scene where Lois Lane talks to Martha Kent? Mm-hmm. And it was shot like a fucking pharmaceutical ad in the like, Whedon version. Yeah, one of the worst scenes. And it's like, film. why? I'm thinking like, when I was watching the theater, I was like, I can't. I was sitting there and I'm thinking, I cannot believe that I'm watching a professionally made blockbuster that has a scene that's staged like a student film between yeah. these two fantastic, iconic actors, Diane Lane and Amy Adams. And it's shot like back and forth, cutting back and forth like a fucking student film. I was losing my mind. And then we get to that scene in Zack Snyder's and it's like, oh, he just completely redid the scene. And it's almost the same exact scene, except he shot it. Like, like it's framed, it's edited. And I was like, I mean, that's crazy to me. All that being said, it's really easy to come back to do a remake of a film that you only did a small portion of, but now you have absolute control of and having listened to tens of thousands of deep cut analysis of and go, oh, well, this didn't work. Let's do it differently and more like what they wanted to see. I'm Is sorry. That, that, I'm being the, like, I want to pull back a bit because I'm not a Zack Snyder film I, fan. I think he is a a hack beyond hacks. Like, he is the ultimate hack uh, of, like, guys who get paid billions of dollars. He's like Christopher Nolan if he had zero talent, but people keep giving him a billion dollars to make movies. It's dangerous to have a, a website and say that out loud. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I just, he's he's really remarkably untalented as a director, and I just have no idea how he keeps getting movies. I really liked this to the point that when it wasn't really good, I found it jarring because it's not, it doesn't sustain the whole time. There are a couple moments that are like, oh, that's funky or that's weird or I don't like that. And it, and it felt so jarring to me because I was enjoying so much of it otherwise that those moments were kind of like, oh, that sucked. And it was like being jostled. <laughs> when it sucked, though, it really sucked. I hate the ending. Oh, the ending's the worst. And then the fucking epilogue. I hate, well, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I hate the coda on it. Uh, well, what is that? Why is that even there? I don't that I was don't nothing think but him going, you guys are going to get with me to make get me to m- yeah. make more money from Warner Brothers, right? Which Warner Brothers had already said, we're never making another film with Zack Snyder in the series. Yeah. He's no longer part of this. And he was like, you guys can do it. You got me this. You could do that. I was like, this is bro-am shit. Like, what? I don't know. John, I, I this really, is much better I, than Whedon's cut. Yeah, I, I really, I do I don't really like this. Much better. I don't really like this. I think this is mediocre. But Whedon's cut was a lesser mediocre. Yeah. They're both mediocre. This just has some stuff that works really well, if for no other reason that, like I said, they already released the film. The guy's like, oh, what didn't you like? What did you wish had happened? Okay, well, now I can just show those scenes. My biggest complaints, there, there's something that happens in Batman versus Superman, and it kind of happens in here as well, which is like this idea of like hat on a hat, which is Batman versus <laughs> Superman has, it wants to do two iconic moments in the same movie. 
It wants to do Frank Miller's Superman death where he is up in space and dies. Yeah. And it wants to do death of Superman. So it does both. And I'm like, you're losing your dramatic impact because you already killed Superman in space and now (laughs) he's back on Earth and you kill him again and you've already lost that. Whatever you were hoping to get from that moment, you needed to have two and now you've lost it. Yeah. And if I have any big complaints about Justice League, I don't understand why... It's all about, I gotta get the mother boxes so I can control everything. Oh, but also there's the anti-life equation. So if this mother box thing doesn't work out, I, I can just do the anti-life equation thing and that'll be fine. And I'm like, why are you, why are you introducing that? Like, you already have the thing that the villain wants. It weakens your script to go, but there's like a backup plan thing kind of, and it feels like sequel building, but it also makes the, it makes the MacGuffin even worse than a MacGuffin normally is. Cause we all know MacGuffins are MacGuffins. But you don't have to say out loud, this MacGuffin is useless. <laughs> I, I <laughs> like, will say, though, that like a lot of the, my favorite parts of this new version are the stuff where they bring out more and more of the stuff from the past. Mm-hmm. They actually make Darkseed a real proper character here where he's only alluded to in Whedon's. Here he's on screen and doing shit and involved in battles. There's a fantastic, like, in the past battle here. It's like, wow, that's amazing. That looks so cool. And Darkseed continues to be a part of the story. And I suspect for no other reason that the main baddie here is lame, is really lame. So you need to have the promise there's a much less lame villain waiting in the sidelines here, you know? Because, like, the, what's it, Steppenwolf? Yeah. Like, just makes me think of things I like prefer better, like, you know, the song by the band Steppenwolf. But still better I than like he is good in. Things, so. Yeah. But still better than he is in the other version. Yes. But nonetheless, I don't know. I mean, I, this is basically, it's not a movie. It's a small mini series and it's best watched that way. Like, don't sit and try and watch all of this in one sitting. Like, watch an hour. Go do some shit for a couple hours. Come back, watch another hour. Watch it like that. Watch it like a series. You'll like it better if you watch it that way, quite frankly, than just it's everything at once. Uh, it cuts out a lot of shit that absolutely did, like, fell flat as fuck in the Whedon version. But there's a lot of stuff that falls flat and it should in here, too. I don't know. I, I have very mixed feelings about this, but it's decidedly better than the previous version of it. Uh there's a 4K release of this that we're reviewing. When, when I saw it, it was on HBO and it was in 4K yeah. already. So I, I did not watch this disc, which My- I just received today. But it comes with an extra feature that is just uh Zack Snyder talking about his relation to the entire DC universe, which I did not watch because, to be honest, I didn't want to gag and vomit. There's so- a big quality difference. And I, I just am saying this for the listener. There's a big quality difference. I watch HBO through my PS5 in the living room, but the bedroom has a Roku TV that has HBO. But there's no, we have an LG TV in the living room and there's no HBO app for the, for the LG. And I bring that really? up to say, yeah, that Wonder Woman and Justice League looked bad on 4K HBO through my PS5. Straight mm-hmm. up did not look 4K. Justice League looked better than Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman looked like, but Wonder Woman didn't look like it was in 4K. Justice League did, but it it was not great. Hmm. And my girlfriend was rewatching Justice League in the bedroom, and the picture quality was like, like it was very obviously 4K. Hmm. Um, 
So I've had I've had bad 4K experiences on HBO Go through the PlayStation. Well, so I'm watching it through Android TV, and it looked fantastic. Cool. Like, just, wow, this looks so good. And I can only presume the if I watch this on the disc, it will look just as good. My apologies. We just wanted to knock this out. It yeah. just showed up, and it's about to release. But, like... It looks great. No question. Oh, and can I mention but, that finally they turned Cyborg from like, the Whedon version, which is this annoying character that they're pushing towards the front, but you never care about, to a character you actually kind of care about. Now. Yeah, you do care about Cyborg. Yeah. I, you know, the chutzpah of, like, we're going to frame this for IMAX for a movie that will never be released in IMAX is also, like, I don't know what I think about that. Yeah. That's yeah. super weird. Yeah, but, that was weird. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, that's it for Digital Noise. Uh, thank you, John. John, just off the top of your is there anything else that you've been watching right now that's new that you want to recommend to people? Oh, you know what I discovered? Um, I'm a big fan of the TV show Pin 15 on Hulu. I've still not watched that. And out of nowhere, they dropped a 45-minute animated episode that I is that. brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Really? It's okay. such a good show. Like, and I, 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 You and I have talked about this before. I think season one is a good comedy. There's something that happens in season two. There's some magical alchemy of something that it becomes something else. And it's really freaking good. And the animated one was really good. But I'm letting people know because I feel like it got no people. There are people that watch Pin 15, yeah. but I didn't even know that that thing existed. It was actually because I was watching Vacation Friends and saw the little block that showed it. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know that was out. Like I was on Twitter all day and I didn't see anybody mention that there was a new pin 15 that dropped. I didn't know you like penis that much. So, yeah. <laughs> Which is when pen 15. And I've penis, been, when you look at it, for 40, stuff. Chris, let me tell you, for 45 years, I have touched a penis. I've looked at a penis. Yeah. Every single day for 45 years. Every day. It's how at this it? point. How How is it? Uh, yeah. Right now? It looks like every other penis. Right now, it looks like a scared turtle, I'm sure. <laughs> I can't even find it. You sure Come you got a dick? Do you have a, do you have some raw hamburger meat you can wave in front of it? This 